I am. Was that somebody's stomach growling? <laughs> that was producer Edge's stomach growling. <laughs> Let me get a lead in on that. <laughs> I think it was clean. It was. It was. It was not until after just to finish talking. <laughs> just let it go, Todd. You would have muted it. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> It was a deep rumble. That was very... <laughs> yeah. I think that the whales... Oh, yeah. I think yeah. myself the hiccups. <sighs> I'm sorry. I could not let that go. <laughs> <laughs> you either have a blue whale in the room with you or... <laughs> We're recording you know, in an aquarium. Somebody <laughs> needs a snack. Intriguing, <laughs> intriguingly, Gregory Peck played Captain Ahab. <gasps> oh, it all comes full circle. All right. <clears throat> let me give you a lead in there again, Todd. Okay. And welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joseph Drowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we are talking about Scout Finch from the novel To Kill a Mockingbird. How are things, Joseph? Uh, things are going well. Uh, I recently, just in a little bit of self-promotion, uh, had an essay collection that I edited come out called The Ages of the Justice League. And it's an essay collection that looks at uh, comic book uh, stories from the Justice League, the the DC superhero team uh, in different eras, and it's got 17 essays from different scholars that look at popular culture, and I'm pretty proud of it. I, I think it's a pretty good collection. And in light of that, listeners, we have a little giveaway. I have an extra copy of Ages of the Justice League, and if any listener is interested in receiving a free copy, it retails for $19.99, and you can get that on Amazon.com. Uh, but if you'd like a free copy, uh, listeners, I'm going to make a thread on our Facebook fan page. You can get that through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. Thank you, Producer Andrew. That is <laughs> that is the best way to buy this book. Exactly. Uh, but I was going to say that if you go to facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast, I'm going to have a thread there after this episode posts where I'm going to say, how have you supported or promoted the Protagonist Podcast? And if you make a single comment in there saying, I told a friend about the Protagonist Podcast, or I rated you on iTunes, or I am a patron supporting you. Or if you tag a new friend, and that is your act of sharing us. Uh, th that would count. Yeah, any way that you've promoted or supported us on the Protagonist Podcast, I will then do a random number generator for the number of comments that we have, and whoever's number comes up will get a free copy of The Ages of the Justice League. Great. Yeah. How have you been, Todd? I am great. I've been debating on whether to say this, but uh, I'm going to say it. I got a new job. And, and uh, I am that, thrilled. Where's that job going to take you? <laughs> it's going to take me to Hillsdale College in Michigan. Uh, in Hillsdale, Michigan. It's a little tiny town in southern Michigan. Kind of closer to uh, South Bend, Indiana, and Toledo, Ohio than lots of places in Michigan. But... uh yeah, we're really excited. So we'll be starting in the fall. We'll miss uh, Southern Utah. It's been great, but it's time to move on and do new things. Michigan is near and dear to my heart. I think you will love that state. I hope so. I'm excited to be a Michigander. All right. Well, today we're talking about To Kill a Mockingbird, and this was suggested by Nick English, former guest of the podcast, most recently on our quote episode. Uh, he had sent me a message saying, I just read To Kill a Mockingbird for the first time since, I want to say, junior high school is what he told me. <laughs> and he's like... Uh, and he's like, he said, I wonder if they've talked about Scout on the Protagonist Podcast. And then he found out we hadn't. And he said, you guys should do that. So now we're going to. Here we are. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird was written by Harper Lee, and it was published in 1960. Uh, Jean Louise Scout Finch is the narrator of the story. Uh, and uh, in the story, she's a child, but the narrator's voice is from someone a little bit older. So the older voice of Scout gives us some insights uh, into the young Scout's perceptions of the world that are maybe a little bit more mature. And Scout is a child in Alabama in the 1930s who watches her family and community react to a trial as her father defends a black man who is accused of raping a white woman. So, Todd, how did you come to To Kill a Mockingbird? I read this in junior high or high school. Did we read this in the same class? Do you know? I think I remember reading it in junior high. I think that was when. I, yeah. I don't know when it would have been because... I think we read, I just remember reading like one big book each year, but maybe we read more than that. But like ninth grade, was ninth grade To Kill a Mockingbird year? Because it was certainly a, a Romeo and Juliet year. It was for me. I did, and I think 
did we all go to the same junior high? I was just years behind I, you guys. Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, and so ninth grade, yeah, we did some Shakespeare. We did To Kill a Mockingbird. We did Count of Monte Cristo that oh, year. You have a much better memory of when you read these things. It, yeah, was, well, it was a really fun year for my for my literature. <laughs> we did not read Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, it was it was an abridged version, but I got so into that one. It's a good book. Uh, so I just remember reading it sometime in junior high or high school, and I I really liked it then. Uh, since then, oh, I know what I uh, I I had a summer job that my dad gave me, which was painting our barn. We have this barn in our backyard, and I had to paint it, and it was a huge project. And I would go to the library, public library and check out books on tape and listen to them. And, uh, and To Kill a Mockingbird was one of them. And I love the narration of this. It's this uh, woman with this beautiful southern accent. Um, and, uh, and that was the last time that I think I read this book. But it's so good. I love it. How about you? Uh, similarly, uh, I think ninth grade. Well, I was just going to say junior high, but I think we've narrowed it down to ninth grade at this point. Is when I first read it, I read it again in grad school when I was doing an American Lit comprehensive exam. And then uh, I loved it both times. Got, I think naturally, uh, not surprisingly, I got more out of it <laughs> when I was an adult in grad school uh, and thinking about it a little differently than a teenager in junior high school. Uh, and then reread it again for, for this discussion. And it is one of my favorite books. I, I, maybe it's, I agree. it's odd to say that with only three engagements with it, but it is just such a good story. So beautifully written. Uh, the, the narrator of the, of the audible version of this is Sissy Spacek. Spacek? Oh yeah. Um, she is, so, she is so good. I could listen to that lady talk all day long. She is really good. And that's the same version that I listened to when I was a kid. Uh, and I listened to it again in preparation for uh, today, and it's so good. And I just have to add that the film is one of my favorite films of all time as well. It's really good. We we will talk about the film in the trivia section, but it is a well-regarded film. It's an amazing adaptation. Well, uh, mentioning your, your audiobook version, today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, where you can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist, where over 180,000 titles wait for you to choose from for your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, or if you're going old school, your MP3 player, including, as Todd just said, To Kill a Mockingbird. So if you've never read nor listened to an audiobook of this, you could go do that on Audible.com. This book is so straightforward that if you're going to start with a with an audiobook this is a really good one to start with it's not um some books we do they're so complicated that you want as you're reading you want to go back and check <laughs> things against other things and this is not that kind of a book you can just sit down and listen to this straight through it's uh it's so good famously the night circus was one that where the audiobook is hard because <laughs> you got to flip back to the start of each chapter and double check what year you're in yes um, but yeah, this one I think would go really well or translate really well into audiobook form. Some yeah. trivia about this, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, it won the Pulitzer Prize and it is generally considered a classic of American literature. It is one of the most widely assigned texts in school, but also one of the most challenged. Primarily. I knew it. <laughs> every, every time you say most widely assigned, <laughs> it's going to be followed by challenged. First, I was hoping that this was going to be the one that breaks that mold. Any no. guesses why? Well? Um... Rape and racism. Mostly it's actually the use of the N-word, because the N-word does get used somewhat casually here and there uh, in 1930s southern Alabama. Uh, it, though, I mean, it's not like Huckleberry Finn use of the N-word. <laughs> it's dozens of times a page, it feels like. I feel like some people one. will take issue with any anything that's written. Yeah. Though I'm sure some of the concerns is about the rape and racism as well. Yeah. Uh, so this was published in 1960. In 1962, there was a film adaptation that was done, and that film adaptation was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It won three Academy Awards, including Gregory Peck winning Best Actor for his portrayal of Atticus Finch. And that film was added to the National Film Registry. And also, Atticus Finch was named the American Film Institute's Greatest Film Hero uh, in 2003, they did. Oh, I had forgotten that. Film heroes and Atticus Finch was number one. That's so cool. 
Uh, there's a stage version of this that's been approved by Harper Lee. It was first performed in 1990, and it is performed annually in Monroeville, Alabama, which is Harper Lee's hometown and the inspiration for the setting of this novel. And I've seen a performance of that in the city in which you now live, Todd. And, uh, really? Cedar City's, uh, they, they do a summer Shakespeare festival, but they always do a contemporary play and a musical as well as several, I mean, many Shakespeare plays in there as well. And one year they were doing To Kill a Mockingbird. I think oh, it's oh. widely considered one of the best Shakespeare festivals around. Oh, they do some oh, yes. fantastic productions there. Um, Harper Lee grew up with Truman Capote, and he is the basis of Dill in the novel. I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> I love Dill. <laughs> He's awesome. He's such a storyteller. <laughs> and uh, Harper Lee studied law at the University of Alabama, but dropped out when she decided that writing, not the law, was her passion. Hmm. Uh, though, interestingly, when we say writing is her passion, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird was her only novel ever published until very recently. Uh, Go Set a Watchman was discovered <laughs> i mean there, there's a kind of a controversial history of this because harper lee for most of her life maintained that she was never going to publish anything else uh other than to kill a mockingbird that she was done and if you know the history of to kill a mockingbird her first draft of it was actually like a collection of short stories and her uh agent uh who was looking at publishing this suggested that she actually focus and expand one of the short stories about scout as a child um when her father defended a black man in a trial and Ghost at a Watchman is that first draft, which is about actually an adult scout uh, who's been living in New York, coming back to a small town in Alabama. And um, it has short stories that flash back uh, some to her childhood and things. And it has a lot of the characters that we meet in To Kill a Mockingbird, though many of them are different. And when the publisher published Ghost at a Watchman, they, they did it as a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, is how it was announced and kind of treated in the publicity Though everyone is kind of said, no, <laughs> tap the brakes. This is actually like a first draft of a story that became To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, one of the most uh, disconcerting aspects for many fans of To Kill a Mockingbird is that the Atticus Finch, who Scout comes back and visits in Ghost of the Watchmen, is um, he, he's not a racist per se, but he is uh, saying we need to slow down on civil rights because it's disrupting culture too much. Uh, and it, it will actually be probably, he's saying it's going to be problematic uh, for uh, everyone if it, it gets advanced too quickly. And the, comparing that to the Atticus that we have in To Kill a Mockingbird uh, upset some people. And again, I don't view this as saying like, oh, Atticus was secretly more racist. I'm saying this was the first draft of a story that transformed and evolved as she revised it and really changed the focus of it. And the Atticus Finch that we have in To Kill a Mockingbird is very different than the one that was in that first draft. And also I was reading... Um... That there was just a ton of dialogue between Harper Lee and her editor, and that that's uh, where the kind of the nature of a lot of the change. I mean, it's just a it's a completely different thing. <laughs> after after they you know they talk about hours of discussing different plot points and different characters and how they're going to develop, and so I choose I choose the reality that says <clears throat> that Ghost of Watchmen is not a sequel. <laughs> to, to kill a mockingbird and that it's just a first draft and that the Atticus Finch that I know and love is not a racist. <laughs> well, and it was also um, controversial because uh, Ghost of a Watchman was published shortly after Harper Lee's sister, who had kind of been the gatekeeper to her estate uh, as Harper Lee aged. Uh, she died and it was like two months later that they announced that Ghost of a Watchman was going to be published. And by many reports, but not all, Harper Lee is much older and... Uh, it, it, she may be less aware of the decisions that are being made around mm -hmm. her at this point in her life. And so some people feel like this was just a money grab by the publisher who found this early draft and they had to wait out the sister dying essentially in order to get Harper Lee to sign off on it. Yeah. Um, but uh, most reviews said this is uh, Ghost of Watchmen is actually most interesting to be read as um, kind of a study in the evolution of writing and as like the, the transformation that happens between a first draft and a final draft of a story. Okay. I feel better about that. Yeah. I was really uh, afraid because somebody had told me you can't talk about To Kill a Walk to Kill Mockingbird without having read uh Ghost Set of Watchmen because it just changes everything and the like the whole universe is different and and uh I don't feel like that. I feel like we can discuss To Kill a Mockingbird as its own thing. Yeah, I, I think so, definitely. Alright, that's what I had for uh for the trivia. Alright. Ready for the the long synopsis? Yes. It's actually not very long. Well, like I said, this one's a pretty straightforward story. Okay, here we go. 
Uh, you can stop me if you feel like I'm missing anything. Uh, so the book is narrated by this little girl named Scout Finch, which is Scout Man. I always wanted to name a daughter Scout. <laughs> I knew a little boy uh, many years ago. There was a little boy that I knew, and his name was Atticus, and I loved that. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, the names in this book are great. So it's narrated by, uh, by this little girl named Scout Finch who lives in the sleepy town of Maycomb, Alabama in the 1930s. Uh, Scout's a bit of a tomboy, and she lives with her father, Atticus, who's a widower, and her brother, Jem. And uh, Scout opens the narration with long descriptions of summer and the neighborhood. And then one summer, a new kid shows up on the block. His name is Dill, and he is visiting family for the summer. And Jem and Scout uh, quickly befriend Dill, and then soon they start to play with each other every day. And one of their favorite games has to do with recreating legendary scenes from the life of the adult son of their neighbors, the Radleys. Uh, his name is Arthur, but in town he's known as Boo, and it has been years since anyone has seen him. So there are all of these mysterious rumors and stories about who Boo Radley is and uh, and what he what he has done, the kind of the horrible things that he has done. Uh, and so they try to recreate these stories. Uh, then one night, Dill, Jer- there's Jem to touch the Radley house, which is really scary because – because Boo Radley, the scary guy, lives in the in the Radley house. So the kids decide to sneak around the back of the house so Jem can touch the back porch. And as they're trying to make their getaway, Mr. Radley, Boo's, fra- Boo's father, comes out with a shotgun and shoots into the air. And uh, Jem's pants get stuck on some chicken wire, and he's forced to leave them behind. And when Atticus asks Jem why he has no pants on, <laughs> Dill makes up a terrific lie. <laughs> About uh, that they were what were they they were playing cards and uh, yes we were playing we strip poker but without we cards playing, yes we were playing strip to play with face cards we were playing strip poker without cards and I won Jem's pants uh, so then that night Jem sneaks out and he goes to retrieve his pants but he finds them sewn up and hung over the fence and we're led to believe that it was Boo Radley that that sewed up the pants so fall comes. Uh, Dill goes back home, and Jem and Scout begin receiving gifts in a hole in a tree near the Radley lot. And these gifts are things like a broken pocket watch or a couple of little soap carvings that look like Scout and Jem. And when they write a letter of thanks to their mysterious benefactor, Mr. Radley fills up the hole with cement. Winter comes, and with it, a terrible winter storm. And uh, one night, uh, Scout wakes up to find that uh, the, the house of their kind neighbor, Miss Maudie, is in flames. And as Scout stands out of the way, watching the men work to try to put the fire out, she finds that, unbeknownst to her, someone has put a blanket on her. And she's thrilled when she realizes that it was Boo Radley. Uh, later, the kids and Atticus go to visit their uncle, Jack Finch. There, Scout begins to hear rumors surrounding her father and a man named Tom Robinson. Her cousin tells her that Atticus is shaming the family, and Scout uh, fights him. And uh, so then we find out that Atticus has been appointed by the town judge, Judge Taylor, to defend a black man named Tom Robinson who has been accused of raping a lower-class woman named Mayella Ewell. Uh, Scout is ashamed of Atticus because people are speaking poorly of him, and he can't do anything interesting like the fathers of her other schoolmates. Uh, then one day, Jem and Scout see a dog that's acting funny, and they tell their cook, Calpurnia, and she calls Atticus to tell him that, the, that there's a mad dog. And so Atticus and the sheriff show up, and the sheriff hands Atticus his rifle and tells him to shoot the dog because he, uh, the sheriff, can't make the shot. So Atticus raises the rifle, and he shoots the dog, and the, and the kids are shocked to see this because <laughs> no idea that their dad could shoot. Uh and the sheriff tells the stunned kids that Atticus is the best shot in the country. Um, and I should mention that there's... Uh, the county. Uh, the county. The county. Sorry. <laughs> there <laughs> was not you. a countrywide competition. There was... Yes. Uh, in the county. Um, I should mention here that Jem uh, gets a, an air gun at one point, and Atticus is telling, kind of setting the ground rules. And one of the ground rules is don't shoot a mockingbird because it's a, it's a sin to kill a mockingbird. Because they don't bother anybody, they just sing. Uh, later, a really nasty old lady on the block named Mrs. DeBose uh, spouts some terrible things about Atticus to Jem and Scout from her front porch. And Jem, in a fury, takes a stick and whacks the heads off of all of Mrs. DeBose's flowers. And as punishment, Jem is forced to go and read to Mrs. DeBose every afternoon. Scout accompanies him, and each day as he reads, Mrs. DeBose slowly loses focus and then falls into this kind of epileptic episode, like a a seizure and that's the cue for the children to leave and after a while the kids learn that mrs debose has passed away 
And then Atticus tells Jem that uh, she was a morphine addict and that Jem had actually helped her through with his reading. He had helped her through the final difficult days of fighting against her addiction. Um, and uh, he tells Jem, I would have sent you to go read to her regardless of whether you knock the the tops off her flowers anyway because she needed it. And he tells Jem, I wanted you to see what real courage is. Instead of getting the idea that courage is a man with a gun in his hand, it's when you know you're licked before you begin, and but you begin anyway and see it through no matter what. Uh, so then one day when Atticus is away, Calpurnia takes the children to church with the black people from town. And although there's uh, one person who doesn't treat them well, most of the people are really kind to the children. They treat them with a lot of respect. Uh, and so although it isn't summer, Dill shows up. He's run away from his home in Mississippi. Uh, and he lives in just a really – he has a really bad home situation. So he's run away to come to stay with his aunt in Maycomb. And uh, Atticus kind of arranges things so that Dill can spend the rest of the spring there and then uh, and then summer. So now it's uh, getting close to time for Tom Robinson's trial. Uh, one night some men uh, go to the jail. to They, they want to take Tom out of jail and lynch him. Um, and Atticus calmly kind of just stands him down uh, while Jam, Scout, and Dill watch from the side. And then Scout comes uh, comes up and starts to talk to the men. And she recognizes among the mob a man named Mr. Cunningham that is the father of a friend of hers from school and who Atticus has helped in the past. And uh, touched at the innocence of uh, Scout, Mr. Cunningham kind of feels ashamed and he disperses the mob. So now it's time for the trial. Jem, Dill, Dill and Scout uh, sneak into the courthouse and they sit with Calpurnia's reverend from the church uh, up in the balcony. Uh, the first witness is Sheriff Heck. He says that uh, – Heck Tate – uh, he says that when he made it to the scene of the crime, he found Mayella beaten up around the right side of her face. And then the next witness is Bob Ewell, who is Mayella's father. He says that he came home from work and he saw Tom Robinson raping his daughter and that he chased uh, Robinson off, off the property. And Atticus establishes that Ewell is left-handed and that he supports 100% Sheriff Tate's testimony. And then Mayella takes a stand and she doesn't trust Atticus at all. And she uh, tells her story that Robinson raped her and beat her up on the right side of her face. And then uh, when Atticus is kind to her, she accuses him of making fun of her. Um, and then uh, and then Tom Robinson takes a stand, and it's clear that he could not have done what Mayella and her father say he did since his left hand, which he would have had to use to beat up the right side of her face, is a shriveled stump that got caught in a, in a cotton gin when he was little. So by this point, Jem is convinced that Tom is going to be acquitted because – there's just no evidence that says that he actually did what uh, what Mayella and her father say, and there's actually a lot of evidence that says that maybe Bob Ewell is an abusive uh, father anyway. Um, so the jury goes into deliberation, and everyone waits for hours and hours and hours, and then when they finally emerge, they convict Tom, and Jem is just destroyed by this. He can't understand, and neither can Scout. They just can't understand why why this jury – would have convicted Tom when there was no evidence that said that he did it. Um, Atticus remains calm and just kind of tells him that there's no way, <laughs> there's no way that oh, a white jury was going to convict the black man. Period, uh, and that it's actually pretty remarkable that they deliberated for so long, and that only uh, the, the understanding is that only only somebody as great as Atticus Finch could have made a case so strong that it would have forced this uh, bigoted jury to to deliberate for hours and hours and hours. So next day, Tom and Calpurnia's friends and a few kind white neighbors like Miss Maudie, um, they just show a lot of kindness and respect to Atticus and his family. Uh, but most people in the town are pretty disgusted that he did what he did, that he helped uh, Tom Robinson. And then Mr. Ewell threatens Atticus in town. Uh, Scout has to go to this ladies' religious meeting uh, with her aunt, Alexandra, Miss Maudie is there, and she hates the meeting because there's just so much hypocrisy among the women of the town. Um, and while she's at the meeting, uh, while Scout's at this meeting, uh, they receive word that Tom Robinson has been shot at prison while trying to run away. And Atticus is really sad by this because he thought that they could probably win an appeal. Um, so months pass, and summer turns back into fall. Uh, Bob Ewell starts causing problems for everyone associated with the trial. He harasses Tom's widow. He tries to break into Judge Taylor's home. And then on Halloween, uh, Scout uh, is – there's a there's a, there's a a Halloween party at the school, and, and there's a pageant. And Scout uh, participates in it dressed as a ham. 
So Atticus and Calpurnia. Just, just real quick, this was not her choice to be a ham for Halloween. No, <laughs> no scout dream. Uh, not her dream costume, but uh, they were all dressed as different um, agricultural items from the county, and she got picked to be the ham. And she actually falls asleep <laughs> in, um, her in her ham costume, and when it's her turn to do her part, uh, she's asleep, and everyone laughs. And So Atticus and Calpurnia are busy, and so they don't go to the Halloween party. Just Jem walks her uh, to, to, the, to the party and the pageant. While they're walking back home... In the dark, they begin to hear footsteps behind them. And Scout can't see very well because she's still inside of her ham costume. And then someone attacks them, and Jem tries to fight. There's a tremendous scuffle. Scout's knocked down. Jem is knocked out. Um, and then someone protects them, and, uh, and they make it back to the Finch house. <clears throat> so Atticus calls the sheriff. Uh, Hectate, the sheriff, comes to confirm that Bob Yule is dead out by the Radley place with a kitchen knife in his ribs. And they ask Scout what happened, and she recounts the story to Tate and Atticus. And then she notices for the first time the man who was there uh, that, sa- that, that saves them. There's another man in the room. And she says, that's the man that saved us. And it's Boo Radley. And she says, oh, hey, Boo. Um, and she's so sweet to him. And they all talk for a little bit. And then Atticus and Tate disagree on how to proceed because the sheriff wants to say that Ewell fell on his own knife. And Atticus wants to say that Jem killed Bob Ewell, but that it was in self-defense. Um, and they go back and forth, back and forth, and then finally uh, the sheriff helps Atticus to realize that if it goes to trial, um, it'll be hard for Jem, but it'll be especially be hard for Boo, and that he'll have to come out uh, and be part of the trial, and then everyone will feel bad for him, and the women will start making him cakes and things, and that would be just be <laughs> – that would be horrible. It would be like killing a mockingbird um, to drag Boo Radley through a big scandalous thing. And so they decide that the best is just to say that, uh, that uh, Bob Ewell fell on his own knife. So then Boo asks Scout if, um, if she will walk him home, and she says no, and then she holds up her arm and lets him escort her. Uh, it's like he's leading her who's leading him back to his house. Um, and they walk back like that. It's very sweet. And then that's the end of the novel. Good job, Todd. Thank you. I love this story. It's so good. It really is great, and it's so well written. Yes, and uh, I think one thing that really stood out to me was how much care was taken on every character that appears on the page. Yeah, I think it would be so easy when writing to just say, "There's the newspaper editor, you know, uh, or or the sheriff," but Harper Lee takes the time to just um, present all these quirks and Mm -hmm. characteristics of everyone in the town that makes them feel fully formed, even if they're only there for one half of a chapter. Um, It feels like this is someone you would meet in that town in Alabama in 1935. And the language is, it's a man. It's so beautiful. So poetic. It's really the, the, just the prose is (laughs) some of the best that I've read for a while. It's really good. One that just stood out to me, and I mean, we could just quote lines that show that Harper Lee was a, a wonderful writer, but she said, I think it was the sheriff punished the steps as he walked up to them. Yes. Uh, instead of just saying he had heavy footfalls or anything like that, it was he punished each step. Yeah, her <laughs> verb. This is the, the night after uh, Jim's, or, or after uh, Yule gets killed, I think. It's, it, he's walking yeah. it to try and figure out how am I going to present the situation. It says he punished each step. I as I was as I was listening, it, it's harder for me to analyze the the prose when I'm just listening to the audio versus when I'm actually reading the text. But it seems to me like she uses um, just so many great active verbs, mm-hmm. and uh, and that it, it really drives the prose, and um, it's it's awesome. <laughs> it's just such a joy to read it. And just again, the way that she reveals the characteristics, it's not to say this character was that. I mean, she really does do wonderful um, showing, but it's also uh, there's a flair to her writing that doesn't feel show offy. I guess yeah. um, that, that I, I think the word you use poetic work works really well. Like there's just a, a skill to the craft that Harper Lee has makes me wish she had written more books. <laughs> yeah. Just this one. Yeah. And not, and not like that. We only have half, <laughs> half finished first drafts that are, that can be touted as sequels. Um, yeah, it's really good. It's, it's astounding to me. It's, it's just funny how you have some writers that are sort of okay writers and, and they'll just write 
loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of stuff. They just they the their output is astonishing. And then you have other writers that are really, really top notch and they write one thing and they're like, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> um so we're here to talk about Scout. So uh but where do you where do you, we want to start with before that? Before you oh. get into that, I, I do have a question about the way um that prose works and the mm-hmm. way the storytelling works and the fact that it's at least um in a large degree you know very autobiographical mm-hmm. um does it seem like the the way that poetry is is woven into it um gives kind of a like a filter over it to make it okay this is autobiographical but this is also embellished like the the use of that poetic right. phrasing kind of creates this uh, sense to the entire narrative that this has been cleaned for storytelling and it's not purely autobiographical. Well, I don't think it, when it said, like it says it was inspired by an event that happened in her town, but I don't think her father was a lawyer. Like that, that was never mentioned in any biography I looked at, which you'd think hmm. that would be one of the first things that comes up okay. uh, in talking about her family. So I think it was inspired by an event, but I tried to find what the event was like Wikipedia and a couple other websites like mentioned that this was inspired by an event in her hometown. And I was like, is there a news article? Like what was the actual yeah. event? And how closely does it mirror this courtroom drama that happens? And I, I couldn't find anything, but I, I was not doing like a deep dive of research. This was, I, you know, I'm filling out the trivia and I wanted to find that out. And I was taking like 20 minutes to try and find that. And I couldn't find what the actual event was, but it doesn't like, I, I don't want to say this was autobiographical. Like she was friends with someone who mm-hmm. kind of is the, the model for the character of Dill. Uh, something happened with a black man in, in court, uh, probably being found guilty of a crime he didn't commit, I would assume, uh, from, uh, the, the context clues that I have of what it says, but I, I don't want to say that this was like based on a true story. Okay. So it's, it's not nearly as autobiographical as I feel like I was always led to kind of believe it was. Yeah. Um, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe her father was the lawyer that defended someone in this event, but that never came up. And again, this, yeah, this and quick research I, I feel like I had always gotten this sense when it was presented to me that it, it was more or less her story of her childhood. Um, and in some mm-hmm. degree, and then that it had it had been, you know, prepared for a good narrative. I think um, by the way, I think the way is as we see go set a watchman, the, the huge like sweeping changes <laughs> in <laughs> characters and characterization between the first draft and the final draft lead me to believe that this is mostly fiction. Mostly fiction. I agree okay. with that. Like, there's no mention ever in anything that I read about her that like her life was threatened when she was a child. <laughs> Which yeah. would be a fairly traumatic and you know key right. point, I would like think. Like uh, Bob Kane writing Batman after his <laughs> brush with. <laughs> uh, I, as you were asking that question, I was thinking about. There's a lady named Eleanor Oakes. She's a, a linguistic anthropologist. I think she's at UCLA still. Um, and she talks about what she, she calls it: narrative practice one and narrative practice two. But she says when you're when you're recounting the past, there's kind of two ways to do it. And the the, the first way is where you haven't made sense of the situation uh, or of the event. And so you tell, you tell the story, but it, it comes kind of in fits and starts. There's really, no, there's really no through line to it. There's no real destination. You just I – mean, you can imagine like right after an accident, if you said, what happened? And somebody's like, well, you know, there's just <laughs> – it's not a planned narrative. But as time goes on, what we do is uh, we work through – narratives in our head and we retell those stories over and over and over time we move towards uh like a a linear like aristotelian narrative structure for talking about the past just real quick uh my wife she does cognitive psychology is her phd but she she's talked to me about how uh as we do that process like we actually invent details that become fixed as memories for us that Mm -hmm. are that can't be verified and often could be conflicted. Uh, you know, if we have neutral like film or, or photographs of the event, like we sure. invent memories that overlay the actual facts and become for us the facts. And also sometimes like the, the act of doing the storytelling, the story itself becomes our memory instead of what actually happened. Right. And so this story feels like it's a long way down that path of somebody I mean this is this is basically and, and it, it's actually framed from the very very beginning she mentions Jem's arm that there's something wrong with Jem's arm and then she says something about uh that night this is in the first probably page two pages of the book 
and it's set up that now I'm going to tell you about how that happened. So this whole entire thing is a setup for a long, very long. It's, it's a very long setup for getting to that night when it, Bobby Hill attacks years him. before that. Even isn't it about three years that get covered? Like we have two summers. Yeah, mm-hmm. at least two and a half years, I guess. So it's a long. It's a it's a long recounting of a terrible traumatic event in the life of this young girl, and over time, it's turned into this beautiful poetic thing that makes sense and that's what and eleanor oaks talks about this other people have also about the importance of taking that traumatic event and inserting it into a larger narrative that then makes sense um and i think that that's what's one one thing that's going on here and another thing about that prose that is definitely higher quality prose than uh the eight was it a seven, eight, nine year old scout? Is that the ages we have? <laughs> I guess uh, this yeah, yeah. Somewhere, somewhere in there. Uh, could do is uh, like, it is the older scout recounting this past event. And one thing that I love that happens in this story is, um, that scout herself never acts like a non child, which so often when, when adults are writing children, like the, the children are just basically adults who happen to be, <laughs> uh, you know, young, uh, scout is definitely a child. But the older version of Scout, that's the narrator, will explain things in like very eloquent ways. But then you see the child Scout try and explain it and just can't. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's very skillfully done. The, the one that stands out for me uh, for that is um, early on when she first goes to school. And there's uh, she's not getting along with her school teacher. And there's a poor boy in the class. Uh, and it's, it's lunchtime. And the teacher asks everyone to get out their lunch. And everyone who brought a lunch does. And she says, well, and the rest of you who are going to go buy lunch, please go do that. And there's one boy who didn't bring a lunch and isn't going to go buy it. And she says, well, here, I'm going to give you a quarter and you just pay me back tomorrow. And the adult narrator scout goes into this long explanation of this child's family and, like, the the social contracts that exist in these different classes uh, and the expectations that would exist there and explains how the teacher is an outsider that doesn't know this. But then it cuts to the child scout just yelling at the teacher, you're shaming him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I love that simultaneous like the child scout understands these things but she can't explain them yeah. uh, and the adult count uh the adults uh scout can very eloquently lay them all out but then we still get the child's voice trying to make sense of it and trying to be able to explain to this new teacher who's new to the town and doesn't understand all these dynamics and i feel like sometimes adult scout explains everything and kind of lays it out and there are other times uh like when they talk about the the nazis and hitler mm-hmm. where it's so obvious to the reader what's going on that adult scout doesn't feel the need to really get into detail about what's going on. It's like, it's so clear the, the hypocrisy and the double standard, um, of the, in the way that people see, uh, Hitler and the, in his treatment of the Jews and the way that they themselves treat, um, black people in the South. Uh, it's just, um, there's not a lot of explanation that needs to go on there. Any reader that's reading that is going to pick up on it. Yeah, it would be and too so bonk, she just bonk, lets bonk it go. Head to, yeah, to say it. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it, it's so skillfully written, and I feel like she walks that line really well. That that moment, uh, this, this is after the trials happened, and Scout is trying to make sense of the bigotry that she's seeing, and the students in I think it's second grade at this point, uh, they they have to recite a current event and one student is trying to uh, is trying to talk about Hitler and like messing up words <laughs> um, and, they, <laughs> so and the teacher uh, steps in and kind of you know tells them about Hitler and how wrong he is and and students are like baffled like how could anyone treat another human the way that Hitler's treating the Jews and scouts yeah. just in the back like seething <laughs> like <laughs> don't you all see that we've just done this to to a black yeah. man yeah so good um, what do you, uh, what do you see in, in Scout, uh, in the way that she changes over time? So there's kind of, it's really interesting to me that this is very much a coming of age novel. Um, I think there's a couple of interesting genres that happen. So you get coming of age, you get courtroom drama, you can get some Southern Gothic, uh, thrown in there. But, uh, Scout in, in coming of age, it's this, you're going from the pure innocence of seven year old Scout who just is existing and everything is like she plays all day with her brother Jim <laughs> and, uh-huh. and the world is just what it is. And that's fine. And she's, she's happy cause she's, she's a happy child. And then you see her like discover that not everything is great in the world, that there is evil and it's not just out there in Europe. Like there's evil in the town <laughs> that she's in. Um, she's 
obviously discovering prejudice and she's her worldview is shaken by that. But then you also see this evolution of moving past that disillusionment into starting to see good uh, in the same people that she also like she's starting to understand the complexity of individuals that the individuals can have blind spots of hatred uh, that don't make sense and are, as Attica says, like straight up evil, uh, but they can still also have goodness within them simultaneously. Uh, so she moves from pure innocence and naivete to disillusionment to um, kind of accepting the complexity of the world. I think I love the word that you used innocent. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think it's part of kind of who she is throughout the novel. Um, so you see her innocence at the beginning, but the, the, I, I feel like the two scenes, maybe my two favorite scenes in this whole entire novel are uh when Atticus is standing outside the jail and the mob comes and uh and Scout goes up on the porch and she says, Oh hey Mr. Cunningham and <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm just in pieces listening to that. Like, you know, wipe a big crocodile tear coming out of my eye when she sees Mr. Cunningham. And she's just so sweet and kind to him. Um and she's trying to remember her manners and there's just something sweet and innocent in the way that she that she deals with that situation. And, and it's another one of those moments where we know what's going on. Adult scout doesn't, doesn't do a ton of explaining. Like she doesn't explain us to death. Uh, we just see what's going on, uh, and the way that her innocence diffuses that situation. Right. She, she faces down a lynch mob without realizing she's facing down a lynch mob. Yes, exactly. And it's so beautiful. And then again, at the very end, when she meets, um, when she meets boo in the house, Arthur Radley, just oh hey boo and then she's like oh mr radley mr author <laughs> she's like getting him some lemonade and she's just kind of she just is so sweet with him and and this is someone who has been such a huge part of her imagination for so long and she's she's imagined all these different scenarios in which he's a monster and he's horrible and he stabs his father uh, but the one that she chooses to kind of latch onto when she finally meets him is the one in which uh, she had had a fantasy about her sitting on the porch with with Boo Radley, and just sort of looking at the town, and uh, and and I I think we see that innocence in Scout throughout, even as she changes. And I don't know how Harper Lee does this, where it is it, it's absolutely coming of age story, it's classic Buildings Roman, and yet somehow throughout it, uh, she maintains her innocence. I don't know how you I don't know how you show someone maturing and maintaining their innocence at the same time but she's done it. And it's well, I think awesome. she, in some ways she does she reclaim it cuz there are the like there's the dark period after the trial when she is ready to fight anyone basically yeah. she's crying herself to sleep a lot of nights like yeah. there's a lot of tears that happen. Uh, and and I don't in those moments of the story I don't see the innocence and that's why I said I think there's like disillusionment that happens but I think it gets reclaimed that innocence. Yeah. Well, it's like uh, it's Hero's Journey, mm-hmm. where she she sort of starts where she finishes, um, uh, or she finishes where she started. But the thing that she, and, and every hero when they go on a, on a journey like that, they do finish where they started, but they finish different, and and oftentimes they finish more mature and less innocent. And I think this novel is interesting because our hero goes on a journey, she descends into darkness, she m- walks through all the muck and everything that happens through that, becomes disillusioned with the world, but comes back out of it and and somehow maintains her innocence through all of that. It's it's really, I don't know, it's touching. I, I, I love it. I think one thing that helps with that maintenance, uh, maintenance of the innocence, or her maintaining the, her innocence, innocence is that... Um, some of the darkest moments, she's almost, she's absent from them. <laughs> uh-huh. So she, she feels the effects, but she's not, not really, uh, there, including an attempt on her own life. Like she is in this ham suit. Yeah. She doesn't really see what happens. Uh, it's very confusing for her. And like in, if this was like a superhero origin story, like this would be the moment where they rise triumphant in battle. Um, <laughs> but really she's, She's stuck in a ham suit <laughs> made on a chicken wire and mache that she can't see through. And Which she, saves her life. She, she gets knocked down and she doesn't know what's going on exactly. Uh, and um, it's not that she's, I mean, I don't want to say she's a damsel in distress, but she's not, you know, the, the heroic victor of this battle in any way. No, 
In fact, and I wonder, ah, man, this is the first time I've ever realized this, but being wrapped in that ham suit is a, a metaphor for her her existence. I mean, she is protected. Atticus and Calpurnia and Aunt Alexandra and Miss Maudie to a certain degree. They and all and Jem, they're all around her and protect her. Um, there's there's actually a point where uh, Hectate says. Uh, look, it's that chicken wire that protected her, and you can see they can see where the line the the line where the knife had tried to cut against uh, Scout and had come up against that chicken wire, and uh, and it's that protective thing that's around her that makes it so she can't exactly see what's going on, but also keeps her safe. And I feel like this this world around the, all of these characters around her kind of act like that through the novel. I want to talk some about that because. Um like all the characters do try and protect her, but at the same time, Scout is very precocious. Um, like she, she doesn't know when she learned to read. She's just always read. Yeah. Um, so when she gets to school, the teacher's actually upset at her at reading already. Um, Atticus will use lawyer terms around her. Like he doesn't, he doesn't dumb anything down for her because she's mm-hmm. a child. Um, and yet the, we, we do have the sense of, uh, everyone, like you said, trying to protect her. So I guess it's, how do we get this mix of a precocious uh, child that, that just sops up knowledge and learning and knows more than a seven or eight or nine year old could uh, or should, uh, I mean, but at the same time is kind of guarded. It, um, I don't know. I don't know. I, it, this book feels like a magic trick to me. <laughs> like how she's able to do so much with these characters um, and create a – it's like a novel of paradox. How do you create a story that's so uh, complex and yet so simple and so incredibly deep and yet um, structurally it's it's so basic? Um, I just love it. I, it's, it's really uh, astounding to me. Uh, your comment about Atticus and the way that he talks to her and treats her – sort of as an adult um not completely as an adult but uh it it reminds me of uh there's an essay by c.s lewis about three ways to write for children and he says there's um there's good ways and bad ways and the the bad way to write for children is to think that they're this completely different species and that you have to do something totally crazy to try to appeal to them and you have to find the things that children like and you have to find the kind of language that children like and then do that. Um, and that's horrible. <laughs> uh, he says the best way to write for children is just treat them as human beings and um, and then write a story that, that you like, that you think they might like also. Um, and he says <laughs> a, a children's story that would only appeal to children would probably be a bad children's story. <laughs> And uh, and that really you can talk to children, you know, like it, like they're human beings because they are. And uh, and I think that Atticus, I I don't know that we can say that Atticus treats her like an adult or like a child, but we can say that Atticus treats her like a human, and he respects her, and he respects her to intelligence enough to treat her like a person. And sometimes uh, he recognizes that she needs things simplified or nuanced in different ways, but he never condescends to her. And, uh, and that's really, I think one of the hallmarks of the way that Atticus treats his kids. One thing I do like about this book, because it's tracking these three years, um, is the way that Jem changes and how he treats Scout in a way that's perfectly believable yes. for a child that's going like she's seven, eight, nine or so. And he's going from probably like, like 10 to 13. Or mm-hmm. I think even maybe a little like 11 to, to like at, at the beginning, they're kind of the same. They, they play together, uh, you know, every day. But as he enters 12 and 13 years old, he like wants to be doing his own things. <laughs> and, and he starts treating, he starts treating scout uh, a little more like a child. Not always. Like I, I certainly there are times uh-huh. where he still talks to her the way they used to. But I think that is that inconsistently is perfectly uh, accurate for a description of a 13 year old. Um, yes, and then later on, she says oh, when she's so sad. What's she so sad about? Um, oh, it's at the very end of the Halloween party when she's sad because everyone's laughing at her because she fell asleep while the teacher was talking and she missed her cue to stand up as the ham, and uh, and Jem comforts her and she says Jem had started talking to me like Atticus and uh, and treating her 
and comforting her in the same way that Atticus does. And, and I think it's cool to see gems. So you see scouts, uh, scouts change over time, but you also see gem change over time from being a child to being disillusioned and, uh, condescending to his sister to turning into a mature adult like his father, who then treats his sister not as a child, but as a human, which is cool. Yes. Uh, there's like, like it's that low point when scout is crying a lot. Like gem is, is, uh, I think condescending is the right word. Uh, she says, uh, I, I, there, it's another one of those moments where like the prose just like struck me where she's, I, I think scout says that Jem used to tell me what he was learning about because he thought I'd be interested. Now he tells me what he's learning about to show off something along yeah. those lines. It might, it's not that exactly, but something along those yeah. lines. And I think everyone goes through that transition point in adolescence and, and Jem's adolescence transition is particularly traumatic because he became very invested in the trial and believed that his father had saved an innocent man. And then when the, the verdict comes back from the jury, uh, it, it, I mean, like his worldview alters instantly and he, like his disillusionment, I think is even harsher than scouts. And it's at the same time that he's getting into kind of early angsty teenage years. He's totally in pieces over the, over the Tom Robinson thing mm-hmm. because he's so, he, he understands so much more than scout does. He's, he's actually started, I mean, he understands the law pretty well. Atticus talks about the law with his kids a lot uh, and Jim is is a pretty avid reader, and so he understands everything that's going on in the trial, and and I think that with that greater understanding comes a greater disappointment when he realizes just the injustice of of what happens to Tom. All right, I know we're we're gonna be we, we've had a good discussion so far. Uh, we have to talk about Atticus a little. Yes, bit. Yes, we do. I was just gonna say the same thing. Uh, before you get going into like the real deep discussion of Atticus, I want to share something I heard recently on a podcast called No Time for Heroics. They were talking about uh, the Captain America, the first Captain America film in the current uh, franchise, and they said Captain America is really hard character to do right because, in a lot of ways, he's basically Atticus Finch with punching, <laughs> <laughs> like At- Atticus Finch, Finch plus extra muscles. Like, that's where his moral ground is. <laughs> and I really loved that. And so, knowing that you were talking about To Kill a Mockingbird today, I was like, I, I've got to share that because... That's awesome. That, that Like, that's the goal for Captain America is to be, like, Atticus Finch morally, but then with the physicality of of a superhero. Yeah. Which I think is a, a, a good way to think about it. And I think if you need to summarize Atticus Finch to someone who doesn't know it, well, it's what Captain America is supposed to be, <laughs> but he doesn't fight Nazis. <laughs> He, uh, not yet. Although he does, he does have a great, um, a great line again. What does he say about Hitler? That man is a, what does he call him? A maniac or something like that? I think it's just maniac. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great line. Um, I love Atticus. Uh, I don't, I don't see a ton of dy- dynamism in his character. He doesn't seem to change a lot over the course of the book. But who he is at the beginning is just fine with me. <laughs> Wait, he's not supposed to change. He's correct in every right. instance. Exactly. You, you he, don't want to except, um... except at the end when you know he's arguing about what they're going to say about the attack. Right. I talked about uh, when we talked about Lord of the Rings. I talked about uh, that Aragorn was on my list of you know my imaginary like uh, council of people that I would discuss <laughs> things with. Atticus Finch was also on the. Uh, he was also sitting at the table. Um, he's so good. Oh man. <laughs> I love him. I I think if we are going to say like, is there a flaw in his character? Uh, in some ways his, um, not treating his children like children is wonderful, but in other ways, maybe there's a little too much distance that happens, uh, in that, uh, th- there's just a few times where it feels like he, he's, he could be more fatherly, I guess, <laughs> uh, to them. But I, again, I'm not saying that's like a flaw in the writing. I just think it makes him uh, like if he was perfect in every sense, it it would be too much. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's perfect in most senses. Can you think <laughs> of a specific examples? Because when you say that, all I think of is like Scout curled up in his lap reading, and I mean there are like there's a time where it talks about him like reaching over and rubbing Jem's hair, uh, mm-hmm. and a time when she like. She she does curl up like she's crying and and she runs to his lap and he's he I mean this is I don't think this is wrong he says like oh you're you're getting a little too big for this but he still holds her there so I think there are certainly great fatherly moments in there but there are the times where she says stuff like uh, we left him alone in his office for you know thirty yeah. minutes after he after he came home uh, from work so they haven't seen him all day 
they have a dinner and the dinner conversation doesn't seem to be always the warmest moment. <laughs> but this is also uh, 1930s a- yeah. Alabama. Yes. I think our expectations for what a great father does today are vastly different from oh, what oh, they would oh, be. Oh, absolutely. Then. I'm just saying, like, if, they, if there's one thing, maybe, like, the, the relationship with his kids, I think it's loving, uh, but it's not the warmest. Uh, and it's, uh, I think, some of the concerns that get raised by the in-laws uh, or, or the extended family, uh, I, I don't agree uh, with every point that they're raising, but I think sometimes maybe he could he could use with some counsel about how to raise young children. Yeah. <laughs> uh, He's doing the best he can to get along, but he does have resources around him that he ignores. <laughs> he actually gives good counsel to uh, Jack, to his brother. That's true. When he's when he is struggling to communicate with uh, with Scout. I have a question for you. So uh, in Go Set a Watchman, um, th- we have this different version of Atticus. And uh, app- so one reading of that, if you want to read that as a sequel, uh, then the reason why pe- some people want to read that as a sequel is they feel like it takes Atticus off a pedestal and makes him just a human. And that, uh, and that Scout at the end, that, that Atticus had actually done on purpose, had made himself into more of a bigot so that, so that Scout would realize that he's not perfect and that she could treat him as a human being instead of as this uh, almost near godlike father figure. Um, do you feel like that's necessary at the end of this book? Like, do you think that that Scout has an unhealthy view of her father as being maybe too good? No. Neither <laughs> do I. <laughs> I mean, that's it's kind of like the question's more complex than the answer there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I love this character of Atticus, and I, like I'm pointing out what I view as like maybe some some flaws, maybe some of them are colored by a modern day uh, interpretation of what what fatherhood, uh, you know, what ideal fatherhood looks like. Uh, but even in like the if we see him like in his when he's most in his element is not at home. It's when he's in the courtroom. Uh, like when he's most that kind of godlike figure. It's when he's uh, manipulating uh, the the people on the stand. I'm, I'm manipulating. I'm not saying that in a negative way. Like he's doing what a lawyer should do, and he's right. showing his skill uh, as a lawyer in those moments. Uh, and even though he loses the case, like the only reason um, all all of a sudden I'm looking at the character's name, the guy who tries to kill Scout and Jen, Bob Ewell. Uh, the the reason Yule goes after everyone in the case is because he realizes, like, as far as, like, I, I won the case and, and the man I accused uh, is now dead because he, he tried to escape when he was in prison on appeal. Uh, but he lost in terms of the the city, in terms of the county, right. and everyone's opinion of him. Everyone knows. He lost Attic- all credibility. Won. Yeah. Attic has won uh, in that, even if he lost according to the jury. Yeah. I, I just think it's a, it's an interesting interpretation to think maybe he's maybe he's too perfect, and so we need this other book that that makes him more real. And I think no, I like him just <laughs> how he is. I like him just how he is. I think it's important to have heroes. It's uh, again, C.S. Lewis said, um, it's it's important to it's 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 important not only is it okay but it's important to show children that there are scary things in the world but if you're going to give them monsters you also need to give them knights uh who fight monsters and i feel like this book is something like that like we see the monstrous side of humanity but we also see that there are good people who do the right thing and who by and large i mean they may be i don't know not perfect but by and large they have a they have a, a strong moral compass that points in the right direction, and they try to do the right thing. And and one of the interesting things about Atticus that Scout realizes towards the end of this book is that the whole town leans on on Atticus, and they expect him kind of to do their dirty work, and he does it. Well, it's not uh, Scout doesn't realize that. Who is it that tells her that? Is it um... is it Miss Maudie or I think it is Miss Maudie or no, Alexandra and Alexandra. I don't think it's Alexander. I think it's Miss Maudie uh, that said, and she's the one that says, "Like if we're gonna be a Christian people. We need like real Christians <laughs> to, to yeah. show us the way." And your dad's one of them. Uh, and and I like I mean, that. I also like that, uh, even though, like I just said, like the courtroom is his element, and that's when he's at his strongest. But it's not presented as though this, like, it's natural, like talent that does this. Even though there's some discussion of talent and stuff in this in this book. Um, 
like we don't get details of how hard he's working on this, but Scout sees that this is wearing like like preparing for this case is wearing out her father. Yeah. Uh and and because it's the child's point of view, it's just, oh, dad's more tired than usual, oh, he's a little crankier than usual. Um yeah. but it uh, but I, I we're seeing the cracks uh that that uh, the strain is putting on him. I think one of the interesting things that's related to that conversation towards the end about uh, how the town leans on him is uh, Scout points out how a lot of people in town don't like Atticus because he took up this case to defend Tom Robinson, and yet he's appointed again to be on the state legislature uh, without opposition. (laughs) And she's like, I wonder why that is, why the people in town all hate my father because he did this thing, and yet they have no problems with appointing him to be uh, on on the state legislature and send him to the to the capital to to work on things. And the reason why is because nobody else wants to do it. And Atticus <laughs> is a good guy, and he realizes that it's an important job, and so he ends up getting stuck with it year after year after year after year. Um, and nobody else is interested in saying, "Hey, you know, let me let, let me carry this burden with you." Um, he does it on its own on his own. Um, and that's interesting. Uh, real quick before, uh, we wrap up, I did want to touch on, uh, the Southern Gothic genre, which is, I think the a f- kind of fascinating oh, part yeah. of American literature, uh, <laughs> that we have this, this, uh, like subset of, uh, of regionalism and subset of Gothic literature that, that have this intersection. And when you think about this, it's kind of like, well, there's not a whole lot of Gothic, but everything that's the Gothic side of this is the Boo Radley and the Radley house. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, the way that house gets described is wonderfully Poe-esque. Uh, <laughs> and, and like this specter of Boo Radley. I mean, he's even named Boo, but there's almost like this, this hint of supernatural that's there uh-huh. in that part of the story that is not present in any other part of the story. Um, and yet it does somehow, like you said, a magic trick, it makes this cohesive whole. Um, <laughs> How do you do that? How do you make there's... this incredible courtroom drama and a coming-of-age story of a seven-year-old girl and a ghost story? Yes. <laughs> That's, and, the, and the ghost story is next door to their house. <laughs> and, it, and it ties in perfectly. It's not like there are two parallel stories that, that never touch. They touch in the, in, the, in the most intimate of ways. At the very end of this, it all comes together. In it's it's the prestige, right? It's the third act, which everything comes together, and you go, "Oh man, that is so cool!" Yeah, I I, I just want to make sure that we 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 really acknowledged again amidst all the other things that you've called a metric in this story, the blending of these genres that do not go together. <laughs> it's it's so amazingly well done, and this is why To Kill a Mockingbird is one of the great American novels, and. This is another one of those examples. I'm going to say, I know I've said this before, but if you only read this in junior high because it was assigned to you in class, and by read it, I mean you, you went to the bookstore and picked up the Cliff Notes version and skimmed it because uh, you weren't even going to buy <laughs> Watch you know, the movies. <laughs> and now, I mean, now you obviously would read it on Wikipedia if that existed when I was assigned readings in junior high. I don't know how many I would have done. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but this book deserves to be read and appreciated by in whatever stage of life you're at as you're listening to this yeah you're gonna get something different out of it now than you did last time that you engaged with this text so if you never engaged with this text it is a treat it really is it's um it's way very high on my list of greatest novels i don't know what else to say yeah i i think that that's <laughs> gonna wrap up our conversation uh i just want to throw out one more time scout is a great character and so many of the side characters in this uh, we didn't really go in depth on any of them but it's kind of like uh, I, I use this example all the time for this but it's kind of like the simpsons where there's like this b uh cast of characters that aren't in the main story don't don't really matter but they're fully formed characters uh that as they fly by you're like that was that was a really interesting character and i cut out a whole bunch of them in my synopsis i tried to just sort of get the main line uh but yeah there are I mean, Dill. <laughs> Dill's uh, Dill's amazing. The stories that he tells are superb. Yes, <laughs> so good. And Miss Maudie, I love Miss Maudie, and and the sweet Calpurnia way that she too. and Calpurnia, yeah, she's so great. And when she takes her to their to her church or takes them to her church, it's such a great scene. One of the things that that I had forgotten about that's not in the film is the whole thing with Mrs. Dubose. And I think that's really important. I think it says something about Atticus. It says stuff about Jem. Uh, and there's just a, there's a lot of meat there. So if you if you feel like you've seen the movie and you and you don't need to read the book, there is there are things in the book that you're missing. 
by not reading it and you should you should give it a give it a read or a listen on audible um this just this final wrap-up conversation it made me remember uh over the weekend i was with my parents and my uh, my brother that i don't see as often as producer andrew uh but we were we were we had um midnight in paris on and we talked about how (laughs) all these i love midnight in paris (laughs) all these um in the movie a man mystically time travels back to 1920s paris which was an amazing collection of talent of artists and writers and uh just every kind of art uh you know creative side was on display there filmmakers and we meet many of them in like flyby scenes but they feel so fully formed uh by these these grade A talent actors inhabiting these roles for, you know, 10 li- lines of dialogue. You feel like you just met Pablo Picasso or you just met <laughs> Salvador Dali, <laughs> Salvador Dali. Hemingway. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And Hemingway. And to me, that's kind of what like happens in this to kill a mockingbird. Like, yes. Uh, like the newspaper publisher, he's really there for a description in the scene when, uh, with the lynch mob. And then also he's kind of present in the courtroom. And he doesn't actually do a whole lot, but he is a fully formed character that you feel like you know who that is in the five pages of text that he appears. Like he's a fully formed character right there. And Harper Lee, I don't know how she did that for so many characters in this small town. Yeah. Side note, if anybody wants to uh, request Midnight in Paris, I would be happy to oblige. (laughs) (laughs) It was funny because... All right, so it showed up on uh, Netflix last month, and uh-huh. I saw it like recommended for me. I was like, "Oh, I should, I should watch that. I need some angry Hemingway in my life." <laughs> uh, so I watched it, and then I was up. You, uh, you mean Hemingway? Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> I was up at my parents' house, and they said, "Oh, we watched it last week too." And, and then my brother, that uh, he's been in the military, and so I just haven't seen him as much. He was he was visiting. He's like, "Oh, I need to watch that." And we're all of us kind of like my parents and I were like, "We could have it on again." <laughs> <laughs> So good, so good. All right. But I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Uh, thank you for joining us, listeners. Please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast on iTunes. Please leave us a review. That really helps us out. Uh, if you're a new listener, just a note about our back catalog. We switched things up a bit at episode 13, so our first dozen episodes are a bit meandering in terms of discussion and length. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to check out episode number 99, when we discussed another American classic novel, The Catcher in the Rye, or episode number 93, when we did a coming-of-age story, Danny, the Champion of the World. Links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. That's also where you can find a list of all of our shows. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. And again, that is where I will put up a post where you could just get a free copy of Ages of the Justice League if you're interested in that by explaining in that in a comment under that facebook post uh how you have helped to support or promote the protagonist podcast if you would like to support the show financially financially there are a few different ways that you can do that to buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation you can click the support link on our homepage or just go directly to patreon.com slash protagonist all supporters on patreon receive access to special quick casts which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers you can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash amazon to make all of your amazon purchases just a reminder it looks exactly like regular amazon and costs you nothing but we get a small kickback from your purchase Finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of Audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. So long. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great... It's been a while since I've I've just burned out on the, the intro there. Gold times. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character. I'm just going to wet the whistle. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. We're just barely getting started on this night. Yep. Okay. Aluminum linoleum.